Hello world, I'm Jared Cunningham. This is the Freelance Forum 2020 podcast series. And over the years, as you know, the Freelance Forum has been made possible by support from the National Union of Journalists and the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, for which we're very grateful. But we've now moved online with this series of podcasts as the COVID epidemic continues. This is episode eight on freedom of information. And joining me is Ken Fox. Welcome along, Ken. Thank you. Ken, it's been said that information wants to be free, but it seems to be equally true that uh, government departments really want to keep it in captivity. Well, it's been a, an unusual time. So I suppose beginning at, at the beginning of March, as coronavirus began to spread, um, I think there was a kind of a sense of high anxiety around the country. And there was also a sense that, you know, at the time we were hearing reports from Italy and doctors were choosing uh, which pace patients would get ventilators and so on. So there was a very, there was a very strong sense of anxiety within the country and also within government that we were going to be under-resourced to uh, deal with COVID-19, not least because our health service had always had, had had such difficulties even in normal times. So freedom of information to an extent, um, like a lot of things, had to take a little bit of a, a back seat for, for that period of time. And during that period, the Department of Health and the HSE and the Department of Employment Affairs, those ones that were particularly under pressure, they looked um, for requesters in many cases to, to maybe withdraw requests or delay them and so on. And my personal view on that was I was happy to do that. And I withdrew quite a quite a number of requests to the department, to the HSE, um, material that would have generated stories in another time. But, you know, you, you could make a strong case that it wasn't the best use of scarce state resources at the time. And I suppose that situation has continued up until now that there are certain public bodies that are under significant pressure. And my advice to people in terms of freedom of information has been to, you know, to be, uh, to think twice before you submit a request to a, an organization that's very much on the front line. But at the same time, over the past two months, it's become clear that, uh, the COVID-19 crisis in Ireland, um, it never uh, appeared to be going out of control. You know, there were major issues, obviously, around PPE. Um, there were other issues around nursing homes and so on. But some of the things I think that we feared in terms of hospitals and hospitals being overrun and the health service being overrun, those things didn't really happen. And for that reason, for an awful lot of public bodies, uh, life continued, relatively speaking, as normal. Um, so some people would have been requisitioned and asked to work on other projects like contact tracing and so on. But for the vast majority of them, it's been business as, as usual. And my approach to that in terms of freedom of information has been to, to treat it as business as usual. You know, while not going overboard and making requests, I think it's totally acceptable to make requests to other departments, for instance, Department of Finance or the Department of Justice, local authorities in particular, organizations that have faced 
new challenges, obviously, have faced a scenario where an awful lot of people are working from home. Um, but equally, some public bodies have probably found that some employees have uh, fewer duties because some of the work that they were previously doing doesn't have to be done now. Um, a lot of public-facing work, a lot of uh, that, that type of thing isn't actually going on. And I think the other thing that became quite clear as well was that there wasn't an appetite for transparency to be put on hold in Ireland. And in, in Scotland, for instance, um, they brought in new legislation around FOI to delay how long or to, to lengthen the period of time in which public bodies would have to respond. But a decision was made here that that wouldn't happen. And the central policy unit, which is basically the uh, an arm of the Department of Public Expenditure, which sort of oversees FOI for public bodies to a degree. Their advice has been to public bodies to say to continue as normal and that FOI is to continue as normal and that you're to do your best. And at the same time, that they would suggest that if there are opportunities to deal with a requester and say, well, can we make this request a little bit smaller? Can we release these records outside of FOI um, to take opportunities like that? And, and I've found that there has been um, some of them doing that, releasing records that, that rather than going through FOI. Some uh, public bodies have taken an approach of dealing with FOI more quickly in the sense of uh, especially simple requests of sort of trying to get it off their books, which, is a, which I've always thought was a good policy rather than waiting the the mandatory four-week period when all that was involved was rooting out one document and sending the email. And my experience has been, I suppose, that FOI has continued as normal through the COVID-19 crisis, albeit um, I don't think there's as many requests going to the Department of Health and the HSE and to the hospitals, because there was obviously an understanding that those bodies in particular were under, were under enormous pressure. But there will come a time as well where, you know, where we're, we're at a situation now where the growth in new cases has been lower than 1% for the last week. Um, and two, uh, in as much as you can say this, the, the state does appear to have a good handle on COVID-19. Obviously, we still have the, the issues surrounding nursing homes, direct provision centres, and um, meat factories and those those seem to be the kind of the, the the three areas of greatest difficulty and obviously there's a suggestion as well that there are issues surrounding um some communities as well where particularly where people are living in very close confines and so on and i think one of the things that COVID has has taught us is that um you know expecting people to live and work in extremely close quarters and poor conditions and so on is is not a, a good recipe in a in a public health crisis, and we've seen kind of that 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 hopefully will be something that we can learn from this. And I suppose to get back to the point, um, as we move on, um, at some point the Department of Health and the HSC are going to have to accept that FOI is going to become part of their business again because people need to be able to understand what happened, and people need to be able to ask questions. People need to be able to understand the decision-making process. And to me, FOI will be a key part of it. Um, that is really 
at the end of the day, the only way in which journalists can access public records unless they are published or unless they are leaked. Um, obviously, there will be other people as well who, who will have who will have their own kind of, will have parallel investigations in terms of uh, Eroctus committees and so on. And all of that will be part of our, our process as we kind of try and figure out where, where we went right. And we went, clearly we went right in a lot of places because we didn't end up um, with the situation that many other countries have. And clearly we went, we went wrong in, in other areas and FOI will be really really important and really useful as a tool to, to tell us that story and to explain why decisions were made. I suppose one area of concern that has become um, apparent is that the record keeping of decision making has taken a back seat in some areas so for instance I had submitted an FOI request around management of coronavirus in the early days in direct provision centres. And it was, I was looking for briefings and submissions for the Minister and for the Secretary General. And when the department came back in their response, they said they didn't have any paper records because only verbal updates were being provided to the Minister and the Secretary General. And clearly that's problematic. Because if there are only verbal updates, then there are no records. And then we have no way of looking back. And there was another story in the Irish Times as well, um, which quoted a, an unnamed minister who said that it was clear that some other important decisions were being made without really good, accurate record keeping. Um, and I suppose when, when we think back in Irish history to the last time, this happened where we stopped keeping good records and where things were moving too quickly to do the things you're supposed to do. Uh, it was at the time of the bank guarantee. And which means that when you do go back to, to do your history or to do your inquiry or to find out what happened, um, you don't necessarily have access to all the things that you need. Outside of the uh, current uh, crisis, uh have you noticed a tendency? I know there, there were reports that various bodies would stop taking minutes or people would stop using emails, avoid putting things in writing. Have you noticed that as a, a large tendency generally or have government departments and so on been adjusted to the idea of more openness? Well, we know that there's evidence that um, some people will try to avoid creating records. And we had that pre-COVID and obviously we have the, the new scenarios that I just outlined to you. But prior to that, we, we know, for instance, that one minister used to keep a parallel diary because uh, he knew one of them would be FOI'd. We know of the practice that uh, John Walsh uh, detailed in his book of putting stickies on documents uh, where kind of the nitty gritty of a discussion would take. And then when FOI came, you could take the sticky off and photocopy the document. We've had lots of anecdotal evidence of that. And obviously there's a, there's a school of thought that, and this would have been talked about a lot when the FOI Act was being introduced, that all people uh, won't want to put forward ideas and it won't be possible to have a robust debate and so on. And FOI will be really damaging to the, 
to the uh, performance of public bodies and so on. I mean, uh, it's uh, clearly nonsense, but that's what what you will often hear. It's difficult to know whether that practice of not keeping official records has become more prevalent or less prevalent. Um, I suppose because as a as a requester or as a journalist, you're always in the in the position where you're trying to guess at what public bodies are doing. You don't know for definite. You don't really know how they operate, um, unless you have a minister or a very friendly senior source who's who's telling you. So it is only anecdotal, and at the same time, it's equally clear. And I would often see this in an FOI release particularly where a civil servant has been asked to do something they're not entirely happy, that FOI becomes a way in which they can um, commit their opinions and their reservations to paper, knowing that this will uh, create a kind of a permanent memory that they said, well, I'm not sure about this. So you would, you see that, you see that element of it and you see, you see the other element of it, you know, where you submit an FOI request today and you get a really interesting story out of it and you think in two years' time, oh, I should go back to the well and I'll try that one again and all of a sudden there are no records and you kind of suspect, well, what what changed between now and then? Have they Has something happened to, to alter the decision-making? And I'd often have decisions as well where... I think this has become a little bit more common and it's kind of hard to put your finger on it, but it's where you get a group of records that kind of explain a decision-making process, but you're reading through them and you're not really fully clear why A fo- or B followed A and C followed B um, because there were other things going on that you're not privy to. Um, and I do find that a little bit more frequent, but it's a very subtle thing that it, it would be hard for me to use it as proof. But it's just where I get a group of records and I've read it and I really am not clear what actually happened. And I have to go back to the department and say, why did, why, why did such and such say this? Because there's no, it, it, the context, it, it clearly isn't fully there. Whereas I think in the past, uh, when you'd get an FOI release of that type and there were 50 records, it was quite easy to build a kind of a chronology of it, an A to Z of it and how it worked and who was saying what and who said, you know, something different. Whereas now I don't find that as easy. And obviously that's when you get records because um, the, the amount of refusals that we're getting, and again, this predated COVID, ha- has, has increased. And I think partly public bodies have been emboldened by some of the decisions that the information commissioner has made. Um, And the information commissioner, unfortunately, uh, his decision-making often seems to favour public bodies rather than the public, what what I would, or what journalists generally would view as the public interest. I had one experience a couple of years ago where I had made a request in, I think, 2011, 2012, uh, which was granted. So, admittedly, it, it took an internal appeal first, but it was granted. And I then made an identical request five years later, just to update what had happened in the meantime on the same issue. And it was refused at first step. And then I appealed and pointed out that the last time the internal appeal had been granted. 
and that was refused. Uh, and the uh, internal appeals officer basically said to me that uh, I'm not bound by the decisions of my predecessor. Um, so that was slightly frustrating. The other thing that uh, struck me, and I, I'm not sure how much of it is an FOI uh, issue, was I was struck when I was covering the Charlton Tribunal, which was looking at uh, various issues to do with uh, the treatment of Sergeant Boris McCabe, how often senior Garda officers were using Gmail accounts rather than their Garda email accounts, which struck me as, apart from anything else, is terribly insecure. Well, I think, uh, and anecdotally, I've heard similar from guards, and I think one of the issues is that the Garda IT system in particular is, 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 is 10 years behind where it needs to be. Yeah, and individual guards often mightn't have um, their own individual Garda.ie email address. And I've heard, you know, again, obviously this is anecdotal, and I don't know for, for sure, but, you know, where... Guards have asked people to send material via WhatsApp or Messenger or via Gmail and so on. But I, I think my experience is that the use of uh, private emails and so on is limited enough. Um, and certainly in a lot of the other public bodies, they tend to be pretty they tend to be pretty up to date in their IT systems and so on. So there's no particular reason for people to be reliant on other um, other kind of providers like Gmail and so on, and as you say, that there there is major security issues in terms of how easy it would be to access potentially access a Gmail account, and the fact that the information is being held by a by a private organisation, the fact that you could lose access to that account quite easily as well. Um, so the practice of of using private emails is obviously. It, it is not is not considered good practice in any public body, and would be um, public servants would be warned against it. And and I suppose going back to the to the Charlton Tribunal, one of the things that kind of peripherally was related to that was the fact that Frances Fitzgerald was using a private email address for some of her communications, and that sort of emerged during the tribunal too. And I've I've. I, I get a sense that there aren't too many ministers doing that anymore, but there were, they, that clearly was happening up until a few years ago. Now, whether that was just um, uh, convenience or whether they were trying to hide something, I, I could, you know, you, you couldn't say for certain. Um, half of that could be just because it's handy because they can get it on their phone or whatever it might have been. More generally, Ken, could you talk me through the mechanics of the FOI process, how I would make an application for someone who hasn't done it before? Uh, you have to be a wizard sometimes. Do you have to be a wizard? or Is there a particular form of magic words that you have to utter in order to unlock the documents and records? Um, well, I mean, the, at the basic level of, of just making a request, people, I have a, I've published a guide to um, my website, kenfox.com. And people, if you look for me on Twitter, it's in my kind of uh, pinned tweet as well. So it has a link to it. And in terms of making a, a request, FY is the easiest thing in the world. You know, you just say... Um, Dear Sir, Madam, under the FOI Act 2014, I want uh, copies of these records. And that's it. There's nothing more to it than that. You can send a fee email. There's no fee, obviously, anymore since the 2014 Act. Um, 
it, it and that part of it is simple. Um, I suppose where it gets more complex is the fact that Ireland's FOI Act is really defined by how many exemptions there are. So information can get refused for, you know, there's, um, I think, 13 different sections in the FOI Act relating to exemptions, commercial sensitivity, deliberative processes around decision-making, that it would have an adverse impact on their performance, diplomatic issues, cabinet records, and and there's just, the exemptions are, are, you know, even after, you know, whatever, 15 years of using FOI, I still um, find it hard to remember all the exemptions. And I FOI, use FOI every day. Um, there are that many of them. And I think one of the annoying things about FOI is really if, if, if a decision maker decides they don't want to release something, they'll usually be able to find an exemption to, to back that up. Now, whether that will hold firm all the way to, to kind of the, through the appeal process is another question, but it'll be enough to, to refuse the initial decision. Um, and kind of that really is a, that really was not the way the FOI Act was intended to work because the exemptions were actually put in place to keep records that needed to be private private. They weren't just uh, to keep all sorts of records private. So you really had to have a compelling reason to keep something private to, to refuse it under FOI. But in practice, the exemptions are used like almost like a checklist. So it's a, uh, uh, do I have to release this document? And then they'll kind of tick the box of whichever exemption they can find. And, you know, so it's almost like there's a, it, the psychology of it within public bodies in Ireland is, is wrong. They're, they have it, they're, they're approaching it from a kind of a, this record is secret, I'll release it if I have to, as opposed to this record is public, I'll keep it secret if I have to. And that that is a, a psychological shift that, tends to ebb and flow according to which uh, parties are in government. And obviously, with our current government, it has certainly ebbed towards uh, secrecy. Um, so, as I, as I was saying, the FOI request itself is really simple. The getting your hands on useful records, that's, I suppose, the, little, the thing that's a bit more tricky. And the, the most key thing that people have to understand when they make FOI requests is that you're looking for records that actually exist. You're not asking a question. So it's not like when you send a query to a press officer or a POR firm saying, I would like to know X, Y, and Z. With FOI, in your head, you want to know X, Y, and Z, but you have to predict what records exist within that department that will answer those questions for me and that to me that that is the the single most important thing people need to get their heads around so um it has to be records that exist so it's emails reports memos submissions those types of things the general way any public body or any organization media organization would communicate you know meetings they have minutes presentations and um, that type of thing. So it's the records that actually exist. And then, as I said, oh, the exemptions, you know, are there, there, there are so many of them. But the only way, I suppose, to really get a grip on the exemptions is and in that guide that I publish, I give people a few resources they can use to kind of get a sense of what, what should and shouldn't be released. But a lot of it is a bit is practice. Um, 
and a lot of it is just sticking with it um, because uh, some people start to make FOI requests and they get a couple refused and they sort of give up and say this is this is this is pointless I'm not getting anywhere with it but it is one of those things that literally every time you you do an FOI request you'll learn um, you'll learn a little bit more about the process and over years and years like I still I still learn new things all the time. And then there are a few fundamental things that people need to understand, you know, as I said, um, there are exemptions around things like cabinet records and so on. So those things are absolute. There's no way around that. And there are exemptions around, you know, a tendering process while it's underway. So if the HSE is uh, building a hospital and the the tendering process is underway, and four teams are four four construction firms are trying to bid for that contract. That's that's exempt as well. Other things like people make requests to the guards for crime figures and uh, details relating to crime, and that's all exempt too. So, I mean, if it's something, if if a journalist is thinking about making FOI part of their daily routine. The, one of the best things you could do is actually to read the the act itself, and it's not a you know it's not a terribly long piece of legislation. It's pretty it's it's clear. You don't need a legal background or anything to get through it, but it will it'll make things a bit clearer in your head of what you can and can't get access to. Really, what FY is most valuable for is looking back at things that have happened, you know, um, when decisions have been made and finalised, to look back and see um, how those decisions were arrived at. And one of the things that's very bad for is for anything relating to uh, individual people or, uh, you know, personal information. So there's really strong protections in it for personal information. So if you want to find out about some resident who died in a nursing home during COVID, you know, FOI is not the place you're going to be able to get information unless the person's family um, make FOI requests on your behalf but you're not going to get information related to an individual patient or a prisoner or somebody who's convicted of a crime or whatever it might be. Ken Fox, thanks for talking with Freelance Forum. Thanks very much for asking me to do it.